following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, when you boys and girls misbehave, and I guess maybe sometimes you misbehave, do you quit being members of the family? Do you quit being the son or daughter in the family because you have misbehaved? Well, you know, of course not. Your behavior is not what makes you a member of the family. It's the fact that God has placed you in that family either by a birth or by adoption, but it is your family and you're a part of that family. And disobedience cannot take that away. Now, it can, it can break fellowship. You might be sent to your room. You might miss out on certain family activities, but you're still the son or the daughter in that family. Well, that's a principle that's true for us as Christians. Our acceptance with God is not based upon our performance, not whether we are good or bad, our acceptance with God is based upon the reality, as we read here in Romans chapter 3, that He has redeemed us and justified us on the basis of the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ and adopted us into His family and nothing, as we confessed in our confession of faith, can take that away from us. Well, this is something that Job is getting at here in chapter 9, verses 14 uh, through 21. And actually, in this, we see another uh, growth in, in Job's uh, grasp of things. Job's a lot like the blind man in, in John chapter 9. The more that he is attacked, the more insight he begins to get into the Lord Jesus Christ and, and his relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you remember that Job's friends are on his case because they are convinced that no one uh, except a gross hypocrite could be suffering at the hands of God the way that Job was suffering. Uh, he responds to Eliphaz in chapters 6 and 7. Chapter 6, uh, he responds uh, having to defend his own integrity, uh, that he was not what they were accusing him of being. He responds by dealing with them with what a, a friend ought to be. In chapter 7, uh, we, we see something of his hopelessness as he's, he's lost perspective. Um, he still is longing that God would take his life, though he, he does say at the end of chapter 7 that uh, if I've sinned, God, why don't you forgive me? Now, that's where we're going to see an advance from what he says there to what he says in our text this evening. Now, in Chapter 8, Bildad, the second of the three counselors, basically accuses Job, Job of speaking like a stormy wind and seeking to overthrow the justice of God. And Bildad makes a, a fairly decent case about the justice of God. Job then begins to respond to him in chapter 9 by saying, in no way would I pervert the justice of God. And he himself asserts the justice of God. And because God's judgments are perfect, and uh, powerful and wise, it would be foolish to seek to justify oneself before God. But that brings him now to, I think, a, a tremendous and new insight here in the verses before us tonight. And we can summarize it this way. 
that the righteous man um, confesses that God owes him nothing, and thus he must humble himself under the hand of God. The righteous man confesses that God owes him nothing. He can't put God under obligation. Thus he humbles himself under the hand of God. We'll deal with those two points in the first place uh, in uh, verses uh, 14 through 18, we'll see the Spirit teaching us that a righteous man must recognize that God owes him nothing, righteous person. Job begins in verse 14 by asserting his absolute dependence upon the grace of God. He, in his summary of God's perfect justice, uh, concludes in verse 13 the God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him crouch the helpers of Rahab, the the proud ones. They're kept under control by God. God is sovereign. God is powerful. God is all wise. Now, it's in response to that that he asks this question. How then can I answer him? Better understood, how then can I plead my case with him, choose my words before him, For though I were right, I could not plead my case. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. What Job confesses here is that regardless of his personal righteousness, he's well aware of it. He's had to defend himself. Uh, That's been the testimony of the writer. It's the testimony of God himself. You remember those four things about Job, that he was uh, blameless, upright, a God-fearer who was turning away from evil. He knew that in terms of uh, of the full character of life, that he was a righteous person. But as he is responding to Bildad about the justice of God and perverting the justice of God, he's saying, Bildad, you don't even begin to understand the justice of God. I have no ground on the basis of my personal righteousness to plead with God. That's really what he's saying. It's quite simple. If you look at the, the fourth line of the two verses... I would have to implore mercy of my judge. He said, there's no way that I can enter into court with God. I can choose the finest words in the world. I can marshal an argument that uh, any rhetorician would admire. Uh, And even though I were right, and the word's righteous, even though I was righteous, I could not plead my case. You, You understand what he's confessing? That though he has this personal righteousness, he has no grounds to plead his case before God. He must appeal to the mercy of God. He cast himself on the sovereign grace of the Lord God. I would have, have to implore the mercy of my judge. So immediately we see here that um, our Christian conduct Our behavior is not what makes us right with God. There's a much higher standard of perfection. And we can be the best Christian in the world. And we still must cast ourselves completely on the grace of God for acceptance. And I hope that every one of you here tonight understand that. Regardless of your attainments in personal righteousness, you must continually rest in that justifying grace of God. Now, Job applies that to his own suffering. 
that he, in no way does God owe him anything. He states it again in verse 15. Though I were righteous, excuse me, verse 16, if I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. Now, the calling here is not a call of prayer. We're still, in a sense, in God's courtroom. So if I'm entering into this contest with God, if I'm pleading, pleading with my, uh, my, my case with God, and God said, okay, Joe, what do you have to say? When he says, I could not believe he was listening to my voice, he's simply saying, I don't have anything to say. I have no argument to set before God uh, why I should be spared. Well, that's what we're getting at. Job, why should you be spared? And he says, I don't have an argument. I could, I could make a case, but God would not listen to my case. He would not respond to my voice. He then illustrates that from his own experience. In the next two verses, he bruises because, now what he's saying is, I know I cannot plead my righteousness. Why? Because, for, he bruises me, with, he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. He says, here's my, here's my situation. God has dealt roughly with me. Notice there's two figures. He bruises. He pumbles him. Then he comes against him like a, a hurricane or a typhoon and, and simply destroys his life with this uh, awful storm. He multiplies wounds without cause. Job says, I can't even get my breath. You remember earlier in, in chapter 7, he, uh, he complained uh, to God in, in verse 19, Will you never turn your gaze away from me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle? He said, I, I just I can't. I can't have a moment, Lord. Your gaze is so intense, I can't catch my breath. He says that literally here. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. His soul is filled with bitterness. Perhaps you think about those words of Naomi when she turned to Bethlehem, and she said, call me not Naomi, that means uh, pleasant, but call me Mara, for the Lord has made me bitter. And, and God has made him bitter in soul. Uh, he is, he's completely undone. But now, look what he's saying here. He's using exactly the language of God in chapter 2. Now, when he describes the bruising and the tempest, God uses another term that's every bit as uh, uh, graphic, and, and that is, uh, you incited me against him to swallow him up, to devour him. But notice the next thing. You incited me to swallow him up without cause. Now, that is the same word that Job uses here. So Job is not saying that God was wrong in what he did. He's simply saying that God has not afflicted me because of cause in my life. You see, that's what they're saying. It's because of, of your life, Job, that God is doing this to you. And Job is saying, no, what is happening to me is not caused by something in my life. In other words, he says, God is the supreme judge, and that God may do with me as he pleases. God owes me nothing. He says, God owes me nothing because I am blameless. 
God owes me nothing because uh, I've walked by his law. And God has done no wrong in doing what he's done to me, even without cause. Now, some suggest he's over-speaking when he says that he can't even catch his breath. But go back and, and think about what happened there in, in chapter 1. He couldn't catch his breath, could he? The way I read it when we went through it. One messenger hadn't finished the report before the next one was there. And it's, it's very similar. I use the analogy of a man who, who's dr- drowning. Every time you come up and, and you grasp for air, another wave knocks you back down. That's what it was like then. And then there's the loss of his health. There's the betrayal of his wife. And now these friends. But worse than all of that is this pressure, this blackness, this anger of God, this dread of God that has has filled his soul. So, yes, he's speaking with some hyperbole. He is breathing. He's not wasting away in terms of immediately dying. He he wishes he he were. But he's capturing here the intensity of the suffering. But the intensity of the suffering highlights the fact that he basically exonerates the justice of God. You need to understand that. What Job has come to see here is that God doesn't owe him anything. See, his friends think that, and this is where he's going way beyond Bildad on understanding um, uh, God's justice and, and how God deals with, with piety. Remember what Bildad uh, says to Job in uh, chapter 8, verses uh, 5 and 6, If you would seek God and implore compassion of the Almighty, if you're pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. And Job says, nothing to do with me. Because I'm not being punished for sin. And thus, I have nothing to present to God. And that's what Bildad didn't understand. Bildad was thinking that you could barter with God. Job said, no, God's absolute in his justice. He doesn't owe me. Now, of course, where Job was in the history of redemption, he, he does not temper the justice of God as, as the balance that Pastor Groff mentioned in Exodus 34, that uh, there is goodness, there's compassion, there's grace, there's love, there's pardon. Um, He'll need to grow in his understanding of the completeness of God's character. But the principle, the principle is one that you and I must grasp. God owes you nothing. And sometimes you and I act as if we think he does. So, in the midst of some difficulties, perhaps not even that severe, but even if they're severe and you say, I don't deserve this. Most of us have thought that, right? If we haven't said it out loud. I don't deserve this. And we're failing to understand this reality that God doesn't owe us anything. He's not the the valet, the servant, the butler, who's at our beck and call, who who must always respond to us. And we'll put that in the context. I've been been trying to please God. I've I've been trying to walk in godliness. I don't deserve this. You see, we're saying that God owes us. But we can also do the opposite. And we can reckon up all that we've been and say, I deserve this. Why aren't you doing this for me, God? As I was meditating on this this morning, I'm thinking as a congregation. You know, we could get that mindset that we're trying to do things that are biblical. And we're praying. We're doing evangelism. And we might come to the point of thinking we deserve something from God. 
We don't. We don't. Now, he uses means. You'll see this, for example, in, at the end of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is pleading for the continuation of Reformation, and he, he mentions to God the things that he's done to promote Reformation as arguments in prayer. And we're free to do that. We have every ground, because of passages like that, to uh, tell God, in arguing with God in prayer, to pleading with him to bless us um, as we're using the means. But we have to understand we never put him in our debt. Never. He's a God of absolute sovereignty. He always does perfectly well, and we need to understand that. But also, I thought, as, as I read these words of Job about our Savior, for you remember Job is a type of Christ. And once again, he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. Of course, Christ suffered for the cause of our imputed guilt. But this, this is what God did with him. He bruised him. In fact, this word bruise is the word that we first meet in Genesis chapter 3, where God's going to bruise the head of the serpent, but also the heel of the Savior. And uh, I think the word is used in Isaiah 53. Uh, he's bruised. He's buffeted. The storms of God flow over him. And in Job's minor complaint, we, our expression, we get, again, an insight into the Savior. Also, we get an awful insight then into hell. Because that which Job experienced a little bit, and the Savior completely, is going to be the endless punishment and damnation of hell. Where those in hell will continually be bruised and tossed about and wounded, but for cause, the cause of the punishment of their sin. Never be able to catch a breath, never a moment of respite, truly saturated with bitterness, constantly in pain and sorrow. And we bless the name of our God that although he did not have to, he delivered us from that awful Amen. And so the first thing that the Spirit teaches us here is that with Job, we as righteous men and women need to understand and confess that God owes us not a thing. We rest in him. Now, he builds on that in the second place by then uh, teaching that we then must submit to the hand of God. In Verse 19, he makes two very uh, emphatic, uh, very poignant statements. Literally, it is um, of power. Behold, he's the strong one. Of justice, who can summon him? Uh, earlier, uh, he had uh, confessed in chapter 9, that verse 4, God's wise in heart and mighty in the strength, who has defied him without harm. Here he says, you cannot go to war with God. You cannot enter into a contest with him. So that first statement, if it's a matter of power, behold, he's the strong one, the absolute strong one. And thus, the Spirit teaches us we cannot contend with God. We're not going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God. We're not going to get into some kind of arguing match with God. 
We're not going to state our rights before God and expect God then to capitulate. Now, throughout history, men and women have been contending against the power of God, haven't they? Cain, the men of Noah's generation, uh, the men of the Tower of Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, the um, tyrannical kings who sought to destroy the church, the Pharaoh, and, uh, the king of Assyria, and Nebuchadnezzar, and of course the Jews and the Romans, and today the Muslims. And they all are fighting against the power of God, aren't they? And history is replete with the fact that if it's of power, he's the strong one. None can shake their fist with impunity in the face of God. None can stand up against him and prevail. Yes, by his sovereign purposes, prevail for a season, but only according to his purposes. And what a comfort this is for us then. As we survey what's happening here in, in America and in Canada and, and the awful clouds of wickedness and uh, uh, the perversions and uh, the folly of, of our culture, and so many men and women shaking their fists in the hands of God, so many longing to see the church disenfranchised. We want to speak of power. He's the strong one. He is our God, God Almighty omnipotent. He cares for us. And so even as we humble ourselves under his hand of power, think of the great comfort there is there, the wonderful safe place there is there as you humble yourself under this power of God. Learn with Paul that in my weakness, he's made strong. And that is so true. But, but he really expands on the courtroom. So he goes from the battlefield, so to speak, into the courtroom. In the second half of 19, if it's of justice, who can summon him? Now he's back into where he started in verses 14 and 15. And he is uh, saying, uh, who is able to call God to an accounting with respect to justice and righteousness? Notice this confession then, and, and unfortunately our, new, our Bibles miss the middle part of it. Though I am righteous. Now he is making a confession that is true in his own conscience. And you understand how important it is that you and I maintain a good conscience so that we, in the midst of whatever we suffer, can say, I'm righteous. Though I am righteous, my mouth will condemn me. So what he's saying is that though I am a man of upright character, a person of personal holiness, if I begin to defend myself before the holy, perfect judge, my own speech will condemn me. Perhaps he even has in mind all of the wrong words he's already uttered out of his frustration and wrestling with the depth of his problem. But he knows he knows that there's nothing in him, nothing he can say about himself that would make him acceptable to God. What an important lesson. He continues, though I am, and my Bible says guiltless, it's actually the word that's used of him in chapters 1 and 2, blameless. Again, his conscience is speaking here. Though I am blameless, 
he will declare me guilty. Again, you understand the contrast. Though he is a man of relative righteousness, a man who is blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil, that that does not make him acceptable. That does not remove the guilt of his sin. It says, my relative righteousness can do nothing to justify me before God. In fact, he says, I am blameless. The same word. I am. I know that. But I take no notice of myself. In other words, I'm not offering my blamelessness to God on a silver platter. Say, here I am, Lord, and you're not dealing right with me. Accept me. Accept me. No, what's his response to the fact that he's blameless? I despise my life. He's not talking here about the circumstances of his current life. He's talking about his life as a righteous man who knows that he is a sinner. Uh, He's talking here, as the Apostle Paul will later talk in in Romans chapter 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. You see, to despise his life is to have repentance. That here's this man who has this upright, godly character, recognizing there is in him sin. I think earlier I said in chapter 7 he didn't appreciate the seriousness of sin. Here again we see growth. Now it's not if I confess, what have I done wrong? If I confess it, would you not accept me? No. Here he sees that it's not a matter of of what he's done wrong. It's a matter of who he is. As a righteous man, as a blameless man, there's yet within him this remnant of sin. And he's expressing here repentance when he says, I despise my life. I thought about these words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, wonderfully commented on by Calvin in the Institutes in the section on repentance, beginning in verse 10. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, now he's talking about their repentance. What earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow is produced in you. What vindication of yourselves. What indignation. That's against themselves. What fear about their sin. What longing. What zeal. What avenging of wrong. You see, it's the same as despising their life. Repentance uh, despises what we are. Repentance despises that remnant of sin that is yet within us. In our short catechism, 87, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You see, Job gets some sense here of, of sin. Perhaps not yet enough of the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, but with grief and hatred of it. That's what he's saying. And this is the model for us, that regardless of where we are in terms of our growth and grace and sanctification, we should look at ourselves and despise it. Sometimes cry out, I hate my life. I hate who I am. I hate these thoughts that rise up within me and I I can't defeat them. That's the beginning of of true repentance. And and may God give us this this insight, this understanding now. 
this understanding that we have only one safe place to rest, then you see. And that's in Christ. There's no way that you and I can do anything to atone for our sins. If this is the godliest man, one of the most godly men recorded in Scripture. And if he cannot be right with God on the basis of his blamelessness, if he sees sin in his life, what do you and I find in our lives? What is there in us to cause us to do anything but rest in Christ alone for this glorious justification by which God not only pardons all of our sins, but constitutes us legally righteous in his sight and says, not guilty. And so humble yourself under the hand of God. Humble yourself under his power. Humble yourself under his searching eye. Humble yourself with the reality that you must rest in Christ alone for any acceptance with God. And so in this somewhat difficult passage, and I've interpreted the basis of trying to follow the flow. There's two principles here that I believe a lot of, particularly modern commentators, don't follow. And, and one is Job's speeches, although, as Calvin says, he has a good case and expresses it well, uh, poorly. Um, he is growing in his grasp of truth through this. You see, this is wisdom literature. And it doesn't make a bit of sense that God would give us... Uh, 36 chapters of all error, does it? I mean, couldn't God have pointed out this error in one or two chapters? What's going on in this development? Well, I believe what's going on is that where Job's friends make no progress, in fact, they only decline, they, they begin to invent sins against Job. Job, as he wrestles with this reality, is limping along, he'll fall backwards, he moves forward just like us in our lives but to clearer and clearer insights that the Spirit is teaching us. And the second, I think it's very important to, to recognize that there's a unity of thought here, and that we need to interpret the, the next section, as we will next week, in terms of what's gone before it. So I believe it's quite sound for you to understand tonight that what we have here is this glorious lesson that um, a righteous man or woman uh, God owes you nothing, and so you must humble yourself under his hand. Now, this reminds us uh, to avoid even as Christian self-righteousness. And I, I warned about seeking to justify yourself, but we do that as Christians as well. We get really gung-ho about um, our pursuit of sanctification, and we begin to think then because... Uh, we are pursuing godless, that, that that's why God accepts us. You think that sometimes? That's not why God accepts you. We don't accept our children because they obey as children. They're children. We love their obedience. And they don't not become children when they don't obey. God does not accept us because of our personal obedience. And so even as you pursue with all of your might and main uh, the godliness to which God has called you. And, and we see that relationship here between being blameless and, and being justified. Don't ever seek to commend yourself to God by what you've done. But on the other hand, do not dismiss or undermine the importance of personal godliness. Because Job's not doing that either. He is a blameless man. 
We should long to be blameless, and upright, and God-fearers, and turned away from evil. And may that be a growing passion in our lives. There's no tension between wanting to please God because he has accepted us. Just as you children want to obey your parents because you love them and you know they love you. And that's why we want to obey. Not because we're on some treadmill, not because we're on a rat wheel, not because we're trying to keep getting God's favor, but because we love him. At the end of the day, we need to remember those wise words from Heidelberg Catechism 114. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiness have only a small beginning of disobedience. See, that's the reality of, of our lives, isn't it? We all have but small beginnings. So every day we confess our sins and we rest in Christ for acceptance and then pursue holiness because that's the will of God for us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.